Bapivo, Bipawabe. Hello and welcome to Meet the Artist podcast series hosted by the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture. My name is Matthew Martinez. I am the current deputy director at the museum. Located on ancestral Pueblo land in so-called Santa Fe, New Mexico, or Ogapoge, White Shell Water Place, Mayak is one of the four museums in the Museum of New Mexico system. Mayak is a premier repository of native art and material culture that tells the oral histories of the people of the Southwest, from ancestral stories through contemporary art. Like everything else, the ongoing coronavirus pandemic has significantly shifted the way the museum reaches our audiences, and we are using virtual events and digital programs to connect with our local community. As part of this effort, Mayak has continued to support indigenous communities by hosting several native artists on a YouTube series, also called Meet the Artist. To reach a broader audience and in response to the growing demand for online content, we are repurposing these interviews into a podcast. In this series, Maya curatorial staff takes some time to speak with local artists about their work, how the pandemic has affected their practice, and what they've been up to in the past year. In this episode, Lilia speaks with Mayak's 2014 Living Treasure Award recipients, Joe and Athea Cajero. Joe is from Jemez Pueblo, and Athea is from Jemez and Santa Domingo Pueblos. Joe and Athea are multi-talented and interdisciplinary artists in their own right. And today, we focus on their individual and collaborative efforts during the pandemic. My name is Lilia McEnany, and I am a curatorial assistant at the museum. And today, we'll be speaking with Joe and Althea Cajero. Joe is a sculptor and jeweler from Jemez Pueblo, and Althea is a jeweler from Santo Domingo and Acoma. They are both incredible artists in their own right, but I think hearing them chat together will be even more of a treat. And they were Mayak's 2014 Native Treasures Living Treasures. And before we start chatting with Joe and Althea, I'd like to briefly acknowledge the place where this conversation is happening, at least on my end, and even though we're in a virtual space, in Ogopoge within the Tewa world. As a non-Native person living in so-called Santa Fe, I am a guest in the ancestral homelands of the Tewa people, and I wish to acknowledge all of the Native people past, present, and future who walk on these lands. So thank you, Joe and Althea, for joining us. We're really happy to have you. So just to kind of get us started, for those of the viewers who maybe don't know you, why don't we start with a quick intro about who you are, where you're from, and a little bit about what you do. Okay, well, thank you for having us. First of all, we are, it's always a pleasure to, to uh, get to speak to people that follow the Mayak. And uh, so anyhow, uh, my name is Joe Cajero and I'm from Jemez Pueblo, as you mentioned, and uh, I've been working as a three-dimensional artist now for many years, I would say 30, 30 years or so. And my, um, my roots are in two-dimensional. Uh, I attended the Institute of American Indian Arts uh, when I was 18, 19, uh, graduated around 20, and I pursued two-dimensional fine arts all the way up to uh, level five of oil painting. And uh, so I really enjoyed it, but, but when I graduated from the Art Institute, I, I began working in clay, and, and that's where I found most of my fun for the last, say, 30 years. And I'm Althea Cajero, and I grew up in Santa Domingo Pueblo. I went to school in Santa Domingo, graduated from a private school in Santa Fe, St. Catharines, and then I went to UNM, and when I went to UNM, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I ended up getting a job, and I worked for Indian Health Service for many years after that as a, an administrative assistant. So um, I met Joe, and, uh, and we've been together since, and he's the one that's encouraged uh, the creative part of me. And so so I became a jeweler after meeting him. And, Which is and about 2003 or so? Uh, 2000, about 2003. Yeah, yeah, we met about 2003. 
Yeah, and so that's been my journey as an artist. Is I used to work at a gallery before that, but this has been my journey now making jewelry. Yeah, when we first met and Althea came to my home here in Positas and in my studio, she uh, would be in my studio and kind of talk about her day. When Althea and I met, she came to our studio, my studio here in Positas, and uh, she began to watch me work. And as we talked about our days, I gave her one of my sculptures to water sand. So she began to water sand and her dialogue kind of quieted down. And I think that's when she began to kind of tap into kind of the meditative state that art uh, takes you to. And she kind of just slowly, I guess, bitten by the art bug, she became uh, um, just fascinated with the energy and, and slowly, I guess we kind of talked each other into you becoming an artist. Yeah, and then he asked me what I would like to do. And so I said, well, my mom was a jeweler, you know, and I've been around lapidary art from being a Giwa artist or a Giwa person, you know, that that's natural, you know, people are either potters or lapidary artists coming out of Santa Domingo. My mom was a silversmith though, and so I learned a little bit, you know, just watching her, I, I knew a little bit. But drilling, uh, he-she and turquoise, I knew how to do that. Cutting, stringing, you know, I used to do that as a kid. And But I didn't ever think I would, you know, it would ever be something I would pursue as a career. But my mother and father always said, you know, learn this trait because if there's ever a time when you need to fall back on something, if you lose your job or, you know, you have a way to make money, you know what to do. And so that was a great lesson, you know, that they taught me. And so I chose jewelry for that reason. And um, I was very fortunate that Co-Arts was teaching jewelry classes at the time. And the jewelry instructor there was Fritz Casus, an amazing, amazing jeweler. And so I was very blessed to be in his class and learn from him. And then from then I've learned from other artists. I've been mentored by other artists. And so I've been grateful. My career has been very blessed, I'd say. Yeah. Absolutely. And it just must have been such an incredible feeling to return to jewelry after all that time with your mother as a jeweler. I can't imagine what that feeling must have been like. It's an incredible feeling because, you know, she passed away 26 years ago. And, and so when I call on her spirit to help me and guide me through the creative process. I really feel her energy here. I really do. And and so I, you know, I'm grateful that I may not have learned the details from her then, but her spirit being with me helps, I guess, strengthen my courage to try different things. And I think, you know, art and faith are so intertwined. And, you know, when you become an artist, somehow your faith expands and redefines itself and reshapes itself in, in ways that you don't know until you engage it. And so um, the spirits that guide us, the creator's energy that flows through us, the creativity that flows to us, I think there's levels of that that you can tap into once you discover it. And I think that's what we enhance in each other and inspire each other is to be quiet enough to engage the subtle hints that flow through us that, that are part of the imagination that eventually manifest itself in jewelry and in sculptures or in paintings. That's such an important point. And I wonder if you could talk a 
little bit more about those subtle hints. You mentioned that you started working in 2D and now you're in 3D, but now you're maybe going back to 2D a little bit. Can you talk a little bit more about what that's been like for you to kind of move between mediums like that? Well, that's a great question. And um, it, it happened during COVID time. You know, uh, at the beginning of COVID time, when we got back home from the herd, uh, there was a little bit of a low for us because we did well at the herd, but not as well. And um, there was a, a shift in energy that was happening. And so I told Althea, I said, I think I just need to do something different. I just feel like I need to, I don't know what I need to do, something different. And then after pondering for a few days, I, I said, I think I'm going to tr try painting again and paint what I was painting when I was in my teens, when I graduated, which was realism images. And so um, I chose a wildlife piece, the buffalo, because one, I thought the buffalo images resonate well with people across the board. So if I paint that, perhaps business ends, somebody might like it and somebody might purchase it. And so I created my first painting and it felt like my training wheels were still on, so to speak. But I felt good. I felt good about the process and reawakening the tingling sensations of that medium were upon me again. And then I, I went to another image, but it was wildlife and a buffalo again, but different, a little bit more challenge. And that turned out great. And I was building my confidence enough to where my third painting, I did a portrait of a Kashari. It's actually a profile portrait of a Kashari. And I created it on a, it's on a 30 by 40 scale. And um, it was a big challenge, intense challenge. And at times I was like, ah, did I take too big of a bite? Can I even do this painting? Is, am I, you know, but once I commit to a piece, I can't do anything but move forward on it. This is the first buckle painting that I did. And it was about an 18 by 20 scale. And it's now just on a printed piece of paper. And, and then this was the uh, second piece that I did. I love that. A little bit more color. Mm -hmm. A I little bit blue. more uh, art enhancements involved in this piece. And then this was my third effort. And so this was on a 30 by 40 scale. It really turned out well, uh, enough to where I, um, I said, well, maybe I might go back instead of uh, acrylics, uh, I might try oils again, which would really be a full commitment of getting back into two-dimensional. There's advantages that I found with acrylics that are different from oils, so I'm, I'm kind of caught in between. The bigger question of the spiritual satisfaction that I've gotten from taking on this new medium, because it's there's all the drama of, I don't know if I can, can I do this, Lord, can I do this? And uh, really digging down and, and trying to focus, it truly tested me in ways that I, I really welcome again. And so um, it's been new for the clients. I We sent out an, an email, an email uh, blast to all our client list and they've been very encouraging and um, uh, have, you know, the question is what's, what's he gonna come up with next? So it's, even though, you know, it's been a very trying time during this time of stay at home, but had it not been for it, then this would have been dormant in me because we still would have been going from show to show and from ceremony to ceremony in our village and the pace of our life was intense. So had, had this been like any other year, healthy year, these, painting, um, these paintings inside of me would have been, again, just quietly sleeping and resting. So 
you know, like we all believe, you know, there are good things that will come about as long as you have the heart and the goodness to look for them within yourself. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a silver lining that a lot of people are looking towards with everything going on this year, just seeing how artists are able to innovate and respond to this forced slowdown. I think that's so interesting. So Althea, have you had a similar experience where the pandemic has kind of changed your artistic practice or not as much? Uh, not as much. It's helped me catch up with orders that I've, you know, I've had for a while. So, you know, usually it's preparing, you know, getting ready from, for the next show and working in orders every now and then. We, at the beginning of the pandemic, after we got back from the herd and were told that the villages were going to be uh, shut down, we decided, me and Joe and my brothers, decided that my dad would stay here with us. And so he's been here full time with us. He's 90, 93 years old and he's doing well. He goes out to walk every day. He goes out and exercises every morning and uses a walker to walk. But here in the neighborhood, it's really nice because we've got the paved roads and it's very safe for him to walk around. So, um, and you know, he gets to wave at people. He's very social. And so he misses being around people. So yeah, the I think the blessing has been that I, I get to spend time with my dad, you know, and I feel good that he's not alone in his home in Santa Domingo because I think that would be tough. That would be really difficult. His, uh, his energy and his stories growing up in the 1930s and being active in the 1940s, those stories are amazing right now for us and keep us very humble yeah. and thought and always in a in a grateful place. And gratitude is, is the key energy during this time. Uh, gratitude and hope, you know, those are key elements. And, but one of the things I think you overlook and saying is this time for you too, this slowdown has been great because Althea has been able to focus in on larger pieces that yeah, ordinarily yes. she wouldn't be able to finish, like big bolos. Bolos have been um, very popular, and bolos for Althea take time. Small pendants, earrings, rings, those are what mainly will fill her inventory on at shows. But bolos are a little bit of a more of an intense challenge yeah. for Althea. Bigger so, pieces, yeah. you know, bigger bolos and bigger pendants, those are a little bit more of a challenge because those do really take time and so yeah and and her bolo line has formed there's a line of yeah, I've got gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> there's a line of gentlemen that's oh my goodness you make bolos i love bolos i need a bolo <laughs> so uh the you know so that's that's a, always a, a a cool thing yeah. to see the excitement of her the pieces that take her a little bit more time and she works with a great stunning stone cutter. Yeah, a lapidary artist from Canada. And he's really amazing. I don't, I've taken classes cutting stones and, you know, doing the lapidary work. And I found that for me, it takes a lot more time. I like I like working with turquoise, corals, you know, um, sujalites, beautiful stones like that. But I also like working in agates and, and jaspers. And jaspers and agates take a lot of time to cut and polish. That's what I learned in, in the class that I took. And so I thought, well, I'd rather buy my stones and then create from, and design 
from using other people's stones or cabochons. So um, I found this artist, or I was introduced to this gem artist, a lapidary artist, and he's just amazing. He's from Canada. His name is Bob McCloskey. He cuts uh, nothing but um, agates and jaspers and citrines and amaturines and amethysts. And so, you know, they're, they're not facet cuts. They're, you know, cab cuts, but they're, they also have a special unique uh, design artistry. artistry in his stones where he carves into his stones the bottom of the stone so when you're when you set the stone it's kind of sparkling from the inside out you know so it's really cool yeah that is very cool so can you talk a little bit more about your creative process Althea I know maybe you could give a little bit of an introduction about cuttlefish yeah so this is cuttlefish it's what parakeets and parrots gnaw on they you'll see it with people who own parakeets they're in cages it's what they gnaw on so that um it builds the calcium, calcium and it strengthens their beak and uh, so back in the 1500s, somebody figured out that this could hold enough heat to cast metal. And that was back in maybe Athens, Greece. You know, so that's where a lot of these can be harvested is that uh, that area. And so, so it's been done since the 1500s. It's been used for casting since the 1500s. And then when you sand into it, sand it down, it reveals the, the lines, the texture. I carve into the cuttlefish the thickness that I want my metal to be. That's and the then I back it. Yeah, see that back right there is a special um, patterning that happens and it'll create a really beautiful texture in the cuttlefish if I can, if the casting, you know, comes all the way down to here. Usually I can just cast up to there and then the sides I have to cover so that metal doesn't flow out of it. The way that I do that is by getting, um, after I sand it, then now I use, uh, depending on the thickness that I want, I can use cardboard or, yeah, cardboard, thicker metal. I use thicker like box cardboard that has the vents. You can see the vents through it. That really helps to pull the pressure of the metal down. And so once um, once I have it sanded and back, I have what I need to um, back it. And that's a tufa. Tufa is what I use to back. And then I'll wrap it with rubber tubing. I go to bike stores and recycle their old, you know, people who turned in their flat tires. So I, I recycle those and use them to wrap the cuttlefish and the tufa. Like a giant rubber band. And then I'll set it and then I heat up my metal and I'll heat up my metal to liquid consistency, very watery consistency. And then I pour, I'll pour into this uh, sprue here. And then I wait for it to cool. Once it cools, then I get a piece. She casts um, about uh, six to 10 pieces at a time, warming up from the smallest to the largest. This is what will come from that casting and it'll be flat like that and then I can cut it up into pieces and create rings for this size rings and pendants and earrings you know so these are real thin thin pieces wow thank you for sharing all of that um that's yeah. fabulous thank you for sharing that joe same question for you can you talk a little bit about your creative process and whichever medium you'd like to talk about sure well i'll start with um bronze since that's what has uh, i've been doing most of my career i create pieces originally um from mostly my hands wood tools and I started in traditional clay from Hames Pueblo. Uh, so it's the same kind of clay that they make pottery from and storytellers from. It's a, an unusual clay that can really um, create realism 
without it cracking or busting when you go through the firing process. So that's the majority of what I worked with for about 15 years. And I felt the confidence to kind of move forward from clay originals to bronzes. And with bronzes, I can work with basically anything. Traditional clay, oil-based clay, which is what I usually choose. Oil-based clay is a, is, a, is, a, is a clay that I can use over and over. So I can, I can take 10 pounds and make a clay, squish it back down, and then make another, make a sculpture squish it back down make another sculpture from it so I can continuously uh, form different pieces using it. Um, this is a, a clay original from Jemez Pueblo clay that I used to create the St. Cattery uh, sculpture that I was asked to create for the Jemez Pueblo church and also for um, so that it can go into processions during our feast days. So kind of a, a very um, important piece for us. This piece uh, is a traditional clay piece that I created long before I started uh, working in bronzes, this was my way of working my way into bronzes. So this is an example of a piece that's been with me since um, uh, probably early 2000. Um, and this is a recent piece of a, of a bobcat. Now this is the oil-based clay. Uh, you can see that I've, I've sculpted it all the way to the details of the eyes and the, and the fur. And uh, this is now an existing bronze. So we can take this and cast it. And um, you can see some of the casting uh, cutting marks here where, uh, where the mold was made. There's a line that splits the cap in two. This is where the mold was created for it. And we can cast, um, you know, whatever we want. Um, 30 editions, 40 editions, some artists cast many more editions than that. And so I worked with a, a couple of foundries to create the body of work that I have here. And um, there's some of Althea's jewelry here, but my castings are done at the foundry in Loveland, Colorado. And then the finish is done in um, Prescott, Arizona by a different company. So I work with two different companies to create the bronzes. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a process that takes patience to learn about. It also is a very uh, ego-taming, I guess I can say, because uh, when you work with a piece by yourself all the way through you have total control of what you want it to look like you know with your with your eyes as far as you read perfection in your own eye but you know with bronze you take the piece about 70 percent of the way and then you give your original to somebody else to take it the rest of the way and including the patina artist that applies the paint so that in itself is kind of an art of communicating and um, creating the vision you want your patina artist to see as far as colors are concerned. And so what I've done is just give them concepts. If, if the piece is about uh, the universe or the rising sun, setting sun, I'll begin to talk to my patina artist about that. You know, visualize the universe or, or, or start paying attention to the colors of the setting sun. Those are the colors that I want emulated on this piece. Or I much rather give them concepts to visualize versus literal translations of I want this more of an aquamarine blue or or deep red you know I, I kind of give them the ability to translate within themselves what they think that color should look like and in the background I'm either giving the thumbs up or giving them the you know could we take it a little bit more in this direction or that direction but in most of the time 90 percent of the time you know through the grace of again the spirits that create with us all they're able to attain what 
what my vision is and, and we're able to create really great pieces that are even better than what my original vision was. Once, once their heart is in it, it makes it that much more alive because they know their chemicals. They, they, they'll say to me, okay, Joe, I think I know what you want. No, no, let me just add a little something. And then they'll take their, their torch and their paintbrushes and their chemicals. And then I'm just in the background. Yes, that's what, that's even more beautiful than what I wanted. So it becomes alive in a, in a, in a very unique and special way in that sense. And so that's a very special process in, in, in how to make bronzes come alive on all scales, be it tabletop or, or monumental projects, which I've done, I think at least six monumental projects uh, for private collections and or tribes and corporations. Painting though is, is a, again, a very unique experience where it's just all by myself. It's just me and the canvas and the paints and, and that has its own you know, fascinating um, movement and kind of drama to, all the way to its completion. So, so yeah, so that's a little bit of my process. That's fabulous. It sounds like you got really lucky finding a patina artist who really gets you. I can imagine that a lot of artists maybe aren't so lucky to find somebody who they can collaborate with so well. That's very that's a very um, insightful point, and that is so true. You know, the amount of frustrations that you can go through trying to find the right patina artist, and then sometimes they're just on the other side of the glass because you might find your patina artist the perfect person, but they might say, sorry, we're not taking any more new artists on right now because with the team that we have, we can only support this amount of work going through our patina shop. So sometimes I have other bronze artists that are asking me, where do you get these patinas and how can I get to this guy? And I can tell them, well, this is where you can go. You can knock on their door and hope that they might be in a place to take on another artist. So yes, that is a very important thing is to find the right person and then and then hang on to them and, right. and hopefully you know, things works out for the rest of your career. So speaking of collaboration, I was wondering if you guys could talk about any pieces that you're working on together at the moment. Yeah, it's mainly on your side of the studio. And, and by the way, this place here is in, it's set up with pro panels and lighting, but I can take this all down. We have lighting up here where I can create a nine foot, 10 foot sculpture in this room. We have double doors, or if I need to do a big painting, I can create a big painting. So this is, this is used as a kind of a multiple purpose area here. So, and um, this is all her equipment, her, this whole work area is her equipment. This is where she does a lot of her, a lot of her time is spent in this area here. And I guess the latest collaboration. Yeah, so this is a pendant that uh, is a commission from India Market. Yeah. I think it was from India Market and it's an amethyst stone. I mean, amateurine. It's a citrine on the top and the amethyst down below. The stone that's gonna go there like that. And then uh, this is Brazilian agate. And it's got a little bit of druzy, druzy going on in, right in, the, in that little section there. So the woman loved the stones. And so she, um, she asked if we could create um, a pendant with it with these stones and so this is the design that we both came up with we asked uh, we asked a little bit about her personality she says she loves to be out in um, the garden and she loves to grow things and so we thought about the spirit of the springtime where this is kind of like all prayer feathers uh, the original design is like a uh, prayer feathers on top but we accentuated the lines a little bit to make it look like leaves and then a headdress that's split in two that represents male and female energy. And then down the center, 
is going to be gold beads. So this is bezeled in gold. This is also, is this also bezeled in gold? No, that's silver. So this is silver and this is gold. The cuttlefish tablita, it will be cuttlefish, the tablita, and then gold beads going through. Yeah, sterling silver. This will all be sterling silver. And then the beads will be gold. And so we, we, we try to get a understanding of the personality or what what things the person may like and then based upon those we'll design something and then we'll email the images and if they like them or if they want to tweak them we'll try to we'll you know we'll work back and forth but she's she loves this design and we've been given the okay to move forward with this piece and so that's that's one of the things where I'll uh, we'll both talk about it I drew out the design and Althea okays it and says whether or not it can be, um, she can create the design and then we move forward on from there. And if we need to tweak them, we tweak them as we move along. We play around with different stones and see what is gonna work together. And then we, we start making decisions on, on the, the pairing. And then we'll decide on, based upon the shapes and the pairings on the concept of, this, of the bolo, and then we'll create the design based upon that. If we have a client that is already interested, then we'll talk with them about the piece and then design based upon, again, what they uh, what their interests are or, or their personality. Yeah, so that's that's some of what she does right there. And then she has her polish, her polishing area. Mainly the whole studio is about jewelry. And in that room is her, uh, that's where she cast her work on, on that side. Again, my area is um, basically that table where I have set up for um, canvases and, and or sculpture. A couple more sculptures right here of realism pieces that I've done in the past. I may, I may use most of the studio, but he's got an awesome hydraulic table. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit spoiled. Althea got me a really nice um, table that moves up and down, and, and uh, it makes artwork, uh, creating artwork much easier. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm always trying to tell her, well, you should get that piece of equipment if it's going to make it easier. And then she's telling me the same thing. If it's going to make it easier, why not get it? So, right. we help shop for each other and I love stones as well so there's I will buy as many stones as as, as we, choo I we choose them together yeah we yeah. choose them together because you know it's it's they can be can be fairly expensive so you know it's uh, we have to set a budget and then and then choose wisely and usually it's we like a lot of the same things yeah so. thank you yeah. <laughs> but that could also mean that you know um, we can make stone dairy artists very happy because yes. we end up like, oh, we can't live without that stone that has to come home with us. Yeah. So yeah. it's creating and collaborating like that as well. Yeah, if you guys have a stellar setup between the studio and the space behind you, it kind of seems perfect for what you're doing. To wrap up, I know you mentioned the herd a few times, and I feel like the herd for me was like the last normal event that I went to, you know, before yeah, it was. I'm wondering how you see the world of Native art moving as a result of this pandemic. I mean, the move to digital with Swaya um, has had a huge impact on everybody, and I'm just wondering what your take on all of that is. Wow, you know, it, 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 is, a it is a challenge. It's a challenge. What we're finding is um, that the nature of purchasing art still remains the same. People still want creativity flowing around them either if they wear a piece of art or if they if they purchase a, a sculpture or, or a, a painting. And Zoom shows have served us well 
uh, up to a certain level of purchasing art. Once the art, fine art, is reaches a certain threshold of price point, then it's it's natural for a person to want to see the piece uh, in person or touch the piece or try on the piece before spending X amount of money, and and it and it makes total sense. So. I think in the future, I believe things will go back to as closely to the way it was before this pandemic, because it's the nature of of us who who love art is we want to we want the feel of it and the experience of it. And so, even though this time is challenging and we'll make our way through it with prayer, we firmly believe that you know there's there's going to be a time where we go back to very close to the way things were, and we and. And all we can do right now is try to be as as normal as we possibly can, and um, be very careful as we possibly can. And and if there's opportunities where we can share our art in person in a safe way, then we're happy to oblige that. Otherwise, you know, it is a is it it is a big question, and and more often than not, um, there's no great answer to our questions right now. So I think it's just a matter of all of us making um, the best decision using you know what. What is available to us to make those decisions um, the best way we can and move forward. So, again, it's a very tough time, but you know we just have to kind of keep faith. And we, you know, we're we're very blessed in the Native community. We're very blessed for the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture, who has brought clients to us. And these clients that learn about Native American art, they fall in love. And then not only do they fall in love with the art, but they fall in love with the person or the people that are that create this art. And so they, during this time, they've been very um, concerned about us and very loving and caring. And they check on us and and they'll purchase, you know, if they know that we're you know going through a difficult time or if you know they just want to make sure that we're all right. And so we're we're very blessed, and so we you know we'll continue to help the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture any way we can because we know that they're spending a lot of time educating about Native American art, and and that's important to artists like us. So we're very grateful, very grateful for them. Fabulous. Um, we really appreciate that. And so, is there anything else that you'd like to chat to Mayak audiences about that we haven't gone over? Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground today, and you've asked a lot of fantastic questions. So in wrapping up, we just want to say thank you to everyone. It's been a wonderful experience, and whatever we can do for the Mayak, we would be happy to oblige, and we're so thankful about how Mayak educates everybody about the art culture, Pueblo culture, Native culture, uh, stirring up interest, and like Althea said, it's that interest that stirred up that it eventually becomes love and support for the arts. And um, be it in any medium, we are so grateful for those uh, that are so generous to us in, in the Native art field. And um, again, you know, we extend our appreciations to everybody out there. And um, we invite everybody to follow us um, on our website. Cajero Fine Arts is our website. And you can sign up for our email list. We do an email list every now and then that uh, we share our newsletter our news, yeah, the newsletter of our process and what we're working on. And it gives some insights that uh, normally wouldn't be shared. So uh, you're welcome to reach out to us and, and just go to our website and say, we would like to follow you and we'll add you to our email blast. And we're very grateful for you too. Thank you, Joe and Althea. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you. Kuntawoha. 
Thanks for joining us today. And don't forget to visit us online at mayaclab.org for information on our exhibits, to learn about upcoming events, or to plan your next in-person visit. To watch the full version of this interview, follow us on the Mayak YouTube channel. This podcast has been produced by Gladys Rimkes with editorial support from Lilia McEnany and Matthew Martinez. Special thanks to Jacob Shahey from Santa Clara Pueblo for providing the music for this podcast. Follow him on TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Be sure to check out his music, available for streaming on Spotify, Apple Music, and SoundCloud. This series is funded by the Henry Luce Foundation.